Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Before we jump into a very interesting discussion, the book is The Ink Plots. It's the uh, about the uh, inventor of the Rorschach test, and it's about the Rorschach test as cultural phenomenon and uh, much more. Uh, comment from yesterday. We talked with uh, New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof. We talked about uh, current news, uh, President Trump, uh, fake news, uh, and uh, the news media, as well as uh, half the sky and other related issues. Here's a uh, comment from uh, Steve. Uh, Steve says, although I'm quite a bit older than their target audience, um, I pay a lot of attention to and get a lot of enjoyment from the biting, humorous observations of of, uh, Stephen Colbert, Samantha Bee, Seth Meyers, John Oliver, and the like. Mr. Kristoff's observation about Donald Trump's attacks on the very idea of objective reality brings to mind John Oliver's 20-minute bit on that same subject this past Sunday night on his HBO program. And I wonder what Nicholas Kristof's take on these humorists who today seem to play such an important part in dispensing news and opinion to many Americans. This is a fairly recent phenomenon. I know that at first many establishment journalists were resentful, but the role these people are playing seems to me to have become essential when so much of broadcast journalism is either outright propaganda, Fox News, infotainment, TV morning talk shows, or a combination thereof, CNN. That is Steve, uh, and appreciate that uh, comment. Keep those comments coming to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Welcome now to Access Utah. In 1917, working alone in a remote Swiss asylum, psychiatrist Hermann Rorschach devised an experiment to probe the human mind, a set of ten carefully designed ink plots. For years, he had grappled with the theories of Freud and Jung while also absorbing the aesthetic movements of the day from futurism to Dadaism. A visual artist himself, Rorschach had come to believe that who we are is less a matter of what we say, as Freud thought, than what we see. After Rorschach's early death, his test quickly made its way to America, where it took on a life of its own. Co-opted by the military after Pearl Harbor, it was a fixture at the Nuremberg trials and in the jungles of Vietnam. It became an advertising staple, a cliché in Hollywood and journalism and an inspiration to everyone from Andy Warhol to Jay-Z. The test was also given to millions of defendants, job applicants, parents in custody battles, and people suffering from mental illness or simply trying to understand themselves better. It's still in use today. And uh, there's a new biography of Rorschach. It's uh, by Damien Searles. It's called The Ink Blots, Hermann Rorschach, His Iconic Test and the Power of Seeing. It's a scientific and cultural history of the Rorschach test and the first biography of its creator, Hermann Rorschach. Damien Searles has written fiction, nonfiction, poetry, translated 30 books from German, French, Norwegian, and Dutch, produced an abridged edition of Thoreau's Journal and an experimental edition of Melville's Moby Dick. He's written for Harper's uh, Paris Review and other uh, uh, places, translated the work of authors including Rilke, Proust, and uh, five Nobel Prize winners, and he joins us uh, for the program today. Damien Searle, it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, so this is uh, very interesting. I th- it's getting a lot of buzz, I think, I, I, I believe, because Rorschach test is such a cultural phenomenon. Uh, how did you get interested in, in, in this and, and the biography of uh, Rorschach himself? Well, I started, I think, just like most of us, where I had heard of the test and thought it was in the dustbin of history, you know, um, all those old movies where they give a set of twins a Rorschach test and the good twin sees a bunny and the bad twin sees an axe murderer and that's the end of the movie, you know, I sort of thought that that's what it was all about. Um, but it, I was surprised when I realized that it's it's actually a real test. It does work. It's still used. And that there'd never been a biography of Herman Rorschach, who turns out to be uh, this really interesting guy and someone who invented something pretty important. Uh, I want to get into, uh, maybe with your last chapter, and we'll loop back. Um, This is the chapter where you take the test, right? Uh, And it's titled, The Rorschach Test is Not a Rorschach Test. Which is which is confusing, but I think understandable. Um, it's the Rorschach test. Yeah, what test. I was trying to get at there is that the cliche of the Rorschach test, where every time you read something in the newspaper, they don't say, uh, you know, the budget plan adds up or it doesn't add up, and give you the actual information. They say, well, it's a Rorschach test. Different people see different things, and then they haven't alienated anyone, and you can turn the page and move on to the next mm-hmm. thing. So that's what I sort of thought the Rorschach test was about, this thing where 
There are no wrong answers. Anything means whatever you want, and um, it's all good. But the real Rorschach test is not a Rorschach test in that way. It's actually has a history, it's crafted, it either works or it doesn't to test for certain mental illnesses or other things. And, you know, it's something real. It's not just uh, throw up your hands, you can think whatever you want about it kind of story. And you have a, a note at the beginning of the book uh, saying that some psychiatrists say that the, the Rorschach test shouldn't be out there, it shouldn't be available, it, it, that people coming to this test uh, it, you know, should be new to them. But I guess that horse has left the barn, right? It's, it's, you, can, you can find I sh- it. I sure think so. I mean, it's on Wikipedia, so um, more people have access to that than to this book. Um, I mean, I should say uh, you're bringing up something that is something else I didn't know going into it, which is that they're not just random smears that everyone makes afresh every time they're giving you a new test. I, that's kind of what I thought, that you go into the doctor's office and they spill some ink and then show it to you. Actually, there are only 10 ink blots uh, that Herman Rorschach made using his artistic skill and sort of going through a long process of trial and error to figure out which ones were really sort of on the tipping point so that they would, you know, be useful in diagnosing someone. If everyone just sees something random or if everyone sees the same thing, it's not a very useful test. So he actually sort of constructed these 10 and put them in a certain sequence uh, in order to bring out aspects of how we see things. And so that's why there's the question of should they be public or not, because there are only 10 and you can't make more of them because any blots that you or I made would not be as good as the ones he made. Um, I do end up... uh, you know, reproducing some of the blots in the book in order to talk about it. But what I say in that note is that looking at them, whether it's online or in the book, is not the same as being given the test. Because if you're in a real situation and they hand you this card uh, that you can hold and turn around and do, you know, sort of really engage with, that's where you get to see how you perceive things. And so, it's not something where you could just go online and give yourself a Rorschach test, um, or you, you can't give yourself one from the book. It actually is kind of complicated. Uh, Dr. Rorschach, his his genius was that this wasn't uh, didn't come from a theory, did it? it this was trial and error, and uh, it, and it came out of his experience not only as a psychiatrist but a but he had a, a visual background as well, a visual arts background. Exactly. Um, he, his, his father was a drawing teacher, so his whole life he was an amateur artist. He'd sort of keep a visual diary of his children and draw pictures on trips and photograph patients to sort of understand them, things like that. Um, so he knew that uh, images could really prompt responses in people. In fact, his dissertation was on that. It was on what he called reflex hallucinations, which is where you see something and sort of have a automatic um, response in your body. For example, there was a schizophrenic patient of his who every time she saw someone mowing the lawn, she'd feel the blade of the, of the scythe cutting into her own neck. So that kind of thing is a... Is a schizophrenic example of where if you see something, you feel something. But he also knew that as an artist, that pictures can make you feel things. Um, When he was in college, he went to an art museum with his friends, and afterwards he'd ask each of the friends what they thought of a specific painting. So, you know, he was always interested in how uh, visual things provoke reactions in us. And so he was, uh, that was his sort of eureka moment to realize that um, that would work in a kind of psychiatric situation. But you're right. He just started showing these to people because he was interested in how different people see things and uh, found himself realizing that um, different kinds of patients or people with different kinds of personalities had these different ways of seeing things. And so that's when he started realizing this isn't just an experiment in perception. This is actually a test. And, and it's about it's about how you see, right? Not not specifically what you see. I guess that's a another key insight. Exactly. Um, 
you know, which makes it a lot more plausible, I think. Um, if, if you have this idea that the Rorschach test is this sort of magic X-ray that, you know, you look at an ink blot and you see your mother or you see, you know, the murder weapon you used or whatever it is, like that seems pretty kooky. But if you think about it in terms of like, well, if you can't put pieces of information together in a way that makes sense, you might have some cognitive problems. You know, that sort of makes a lot more sense. Hmm. Um, so what happens when someone gives you a Rorschach test, and this, is, this started with Herman Rorschach himself, is that they write down your answers, but then they give them codes based on, are you describing the whole ink blot or just a part of it? Are you using the color in your response? Is it a... Um, is it a sort of lifelike image where you see things moving or do you see everything statically? And it's those codes that then um, he would use to come up with a diagnosis. So it really almost didn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if you see a bat or a butterfly. It sort of matters if you see only animals or only people or something like that. But the specific details of what it is is really not what the test is about. According to you, you say he, he purposely simplified the blots as he went along, made them potentially clumsier, more unusual, added colors. And then, he, and then you go and say some blots really do look like a bat or two waiters, because if they were random, it wouldn't be much of a test. But a lot of latitude is left for personal interpretation. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of what I was saying before about it being on the tipping point. You know, um, if, if, the, if all the blots just look like smears, then you'd really have to just make something up. And it would be a test of your imagination, but it wouldn't actually show how you perceive things that are really there. Um, so uh, some psychologists had used ink blots that way before. They'd make a smear and show it to a, a class, and the kids in the class who could come up with two things didn't have very much imagination, and the, things, and the kids in the class who could come up with 25 things that it looked like had a lot of imagination. So that was sort of the the earlier way people had thought you could use ink blots. But he was the one who realized that no, if you if you craft the images uh to make them sort of look like something but not quite uh in the right way, then you can really test how people perceive, not just how much stuff they can make up. Um and uh Rorschach himself didn't call it a test, right? It was a perception experiment. Right. Um, I mean, he did realize that he could use it um, to, um, to, to test and diagnose people, but it started as an experiment. And the thing is, he died so young and so shortly after inventing the test that it was really this experimental sort of work in process all the way through to his death. Um, and then after his death, it was a sort of sorcerer's apprentice thing where it just kind of caught fire in different parts of the world and started turning into very different um, things from what he imagined. I want to have you, uh, just in a few minutes, tell me a bit more about uh, Rorschach. He, you describe him as, and, and in the book, it's, it's true, he does look like Brad Pitt. Uh, and, and apparently his, uh, you know, many patients uh, really took to him because he was a you know, very empathetic and, and a kind man. Um, and uh, Zurich at the time, the, you know, the turn of the 20th century here was uh, was a hotbed of science and art. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to have you uh, tell me, the, the beginning of the book, you uh, talk about how this test, as it's used today, it's gone through ups and downs in, in uh, you know, in, in perception in the scientific community. But it can be it can be quite effective. Uh, I wonder if you tell me about Victor Norris. That's not his real name. That's not his real name. That's the the story I opened the book with. Um, this was a guy who um, was applying for a job working with children and um, was given a psychological evaluation. And the way the test is used today is sort of less sensational than it might. Sound. You know, uh, if, if you're getting a psychological evaluation for something, if you're, you know, suing someone for psychological damages or you're applying to be a police officer or whatever it is, then it's possible that the Rorschach will be one of the tests you're given. You'll be given 
probably an IQ test, probably a questionnaire test called the MMPI. They'll probably interview you. You know, you'll be given a bunch of tests, and this will be one of them. And then the psychologist or evaluator will pull together an evaluation. So I think people have this idea that, like, oh, my God, if I see one dancing bear on the Rorschach test, they'll think I'm crazy. And, like, that's not how it works. It really is just part of a whole picture. But what happened with this Victor Norris guy, um, which which is kind of common, is that, um, you know, he did great in the interviews. He did fine on all the other tests. He seemed, you know, perfectly normal. And then when the evaluator gave him the Rorschach test, suddenly he's giving these violent, horrible answers that are the last kind of thing you'd want someone working with children to be seeing in ink blots. And um, in a way that goes against what I was saying about um, that it's how you see, not what you see, because what he saw was really horrible. But the evaluator sort of did the scoring and the coding and plugged in all the formulas and found out, sure enough, that the test showed that this person has a very weak grip on reality and should not be, um, you know, given this job. So he wasn't given the job. Uh, A bunch of years later, the evaluator gets a phone call from someone saying, hello, I'm a therapist. I'm working with a patient named Victor Norris. And, you know, she remembered who he was and was not at liberty to say everything, but sort of said the basic findings. And this other therapist said, you got all that from a Rorschach test? I thought the Rorschach was just tea leaves. Mm. And so the amazing thing about that story is whatever you think the Rorschach can or can't reveal, the undeniable fact is that it did kind of get around this guy's self-presentation and make him start saying stuff that he knew he didn't want to be saying. I mean, he still knew he was in this job interview situation. Um, but because the test is visual and kind of mysterious, it really does tend to tap into a part of ourselves that's sort of behind a lot of our conscious ways of presenting ourselves. And so that's why I open the book like this, because whatever wherever you're going to end up in the controversies about the Rorschach test, the fact is that it did do something with this guy and does tend to do a similar kind of thing with people like that, um, where, you know, they kind of fall apart because it's tapping into some part of them that they can't control. It was interesting to, to reading that experience that, uh, and if I put myself in that, yeah, in that situation, I think I'd probably have my guard up, you know, and, and, Maybe including with the with the Rorschach test, I'd you know I'd purposely say bunnies or something. But um, but there's something about visual that to, that perhaps frees up that part of your your brain, and at least in some people. Yeah, I mean, I uh, what Rorschach found is that um, you know basically nobody says stuff that they don't see. Like if he asked people, oh, use your imagination when you take the test. It makes no difference because people aren't making stuff up because they do sort of look like things. So, um, I mean, there are some cards that absolutely do not look like bunnies. And if you see the ones that look like a bunny, like a bunny, then that's perfectly fine. I mean, there's there's not a problem with – I mean, there's no answer key. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's Our our idea of it is that bunnies are always good and axe murderers are always bad, but Mm – that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you say every card looks like a bunny, even the ones that don't look like bunnies, then it's pretty obvious that either you don't see things very well or you're trying to, you know, trick the mm-hmm. evaluator. Yeah, I guess that, um, would, that would become clear, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, you, you write in the book that um, the public tends to be skeptical of, of the Rorschach uh, test. But, uh, still, and I don't know, maybe does that come from all those movies where... You know, as you say, the, the one twin sees the bunny and the other sees the axe murderer, and then the movie ends. Yeah, I mean, I think so, right? If I uh, if I remember back to what I thought about the Rorschach test before I sort of stumbled on this project, I mean, I, it, it seemed kind of like truth serum to me. It was something I expected to see in a movie set in the fifties, but I, I didn't think it would work. So I think part of it is um, not understanding what it really is and how it works. I think the other part, to be honest, is that, 
you know, people are suspicious, I think, of visual thinking. We think that if something is real, if it's hard science, then it has to be about numbers or it has to be about filling in something on a bubble sheet. You know, it has to be this kind of mathematical type thing. Um, And I think people just tend to downplay that something visual can be, you know, real. Like, for example, an artist can make a still image seem like it's moving. Any cartoonist drawing, you know, Snoopy with his foot up, you see him walking. Anyone who'd like draw someone turning their head or kicking a soccer ball, there's like movement in there. It's not that it's somehow fake or an illusion. It's that images really do have certain qualities. And so, um, you know, the fact that Rorschach was able to put movement into an image in a way, isn't that special? Any artist could do that. What he did was he realized if I make the image too good, then everyone will see movement in it. So I have to make it so that you might see movement or you might see it only in this or that card, but you won't see it in other places. And that'll tell me sort of what your level is of how much you sort of bring the image to life. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So yeah, it's, yes, it's about... Um, I. And to get back to your question about the skepticism, I think people just assume, oh, if it's visual, then it's about art interpretation and it's subjective and there's nothing real there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that gets us into uh, Freud, uh, who was influential on, on, on Rorschach. Uh, Freud used words, right? He he thought that uh, the words we use would reveal the the inner mind. Uh, Rorschach was going to the visual. Let's talk about that after a break and get into this uh, this ferment that uh, that was uh, Switzerland in the uh, 19-teens, and uh, that's when Hermann Rorschach came up with these Rorschach tests. We'll get into the cultural phenomenon as well. This um, We're using it now in the popular culture as a metaphor for freedom of uh, interpretation of, of, uh, of what you're seeing. Um, we were talking with Damien Searles. He's author of The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test and the Power of Seeing. And you can join the conversation to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Music Theater West presenting My Fair Lady, based on George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, with book, music, and lyrics by Lerner and low February 24th through March 4th at the Ellen Eccles Theater. Ticket information at musictheaterwest.org. We want to hear your story. Utah Works is a new series of short stories about the way we work in Utah, told in participants' own words for airing this spring on Utah Public Radio. We'd love for you to tell your stories as part of this series. Utah Works is based on The Way We Worked, which is a traveling exhibition created by the Smithsonian Institution and the National Archives which explores how work became such a central element in American culture. The Way We Worked is touring six Utah communities during 2017, and as part of that tour, Utah Humanities and Utah Public Radio are partnering with Ogden Union Station and Hiram City Museum to interview local residents about their work. And we want to hear your story. To sign up to come into Ogden or Hiram to tell your story, go to our website, upr.org. That's upr.org. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Access U Time. Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Damien Searles, author of the new book, The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test and the Power of Seeing. It's a scientific and cultural history of the Rorschach test and the first biography of its creator, Herman Rorschach. You can join us in this conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, uh, so this test was developed in 1917, 1918. Uh, Herman Rorschach was uh, working alone in a remote Swiss asylum. He devised an experiment to probe the human mind, a set of ten carefully designed ink plots. And, uh, those ink plots have gone on to uh, become a, a cliché and a metaphor, uh, but they're still used. Um, in psychiatry uh, today. Um, before we get into some of the history, which is very fascinating, this is a very interesting time and place, Switzerland in the in the 19 teens. Uh, Damien Searles, uh, you wrote an art- article recently. In fact, it was right before the election uh, for Time magazine. The title: No, this election is not a Rorschach test. 
<laughs> That's interesting. And I I heard the the uh, I heard those comparisons. In fact, uh, Hillary Clinton called herself a Rorschach test. She called herself one uh, in '93, and that has stuck with her. Uh, Barack Obama called himself a Rorschach test uh, when he was a candidate in 2008. Um, although he meant something a little different about what that meant, but uh, I, I think what all those articles that you and I read uh, about how the elections a Rorschach test was again this idea that there's nothing, you know, there's there's no real fact there. There's just something that you can have whatever opinion about you want. Um, that's what Hillary Clinton meant in '93. She's like if. If you're this kind of person, you'll like me. If you're that kind of person, you'll hate me. But it's not about me. It's just about you. Um, and so uh, the the election may have been a metaphorical Rorschach test. Um, I'm certainly seeing a lot of political news that uh, reactions to things are very polarized, um, where if you're in one camp, you sort of see one thing, and if you're in another camp, you see another thing. So that's the Rorschach test metaphor. But it, but the real Rorschach test isn't that. The real Rorschach test actually um, isn't all about your opinions. It the what you're looking at has you know real properties and real qualities that we can look at together and see if we have common ground about. And the Rorschach test, as metaphor or as cliche, has been used in many different ways, responding to many different uh, you know the things that popular culture is responding to. Uh, now, as you mentioned, uh, it, it's being used to, to respond to our fragmentation, right, to polarization. Uh, I want you to just read the last paragraph in, y- in your uh, your piece in the Time magazine. You say, after November 8th, maybe we'll stop asking the question and start, start focusing on the answer. The real Rorschach test, not the metaphor, is a way to move past differences in perspective, because what do you see has an answer when you're looking together at something right in front of you. That sounds like a... A, 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 at least a start of a prescription for the fragmentation polarization. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily have a, a, a literal program that if you sort of give Republicans and Democrats a bunch of Rorschach tests, that suddenly they'll start agreeing with each other. But just the whole idea that um, that what you're looking at is kind of meaningless, except for whatever opinion you happen to have about it. I think uh, is a sort of point of view that really entered our culture starting in the late 60s when there was a revolt against all kinds of authority and all kinds of sort of top-down people telling me what I should think and what I should do. That happened politically. It happened uh, in science. It happened all over the culture. And so that was actually when the metaphor started. I was sort of surprised to realize that there weren't all those newspaper articles calling, you know, the World Series of Rorschach test back in the 30s and 40s. All that stuff started in the 60s and 70s. So that was when, I think, American culture entered this moment of, you know, we want to just give everyone the freedom to have their own opinion about things. And that's when the Rorschach metaphor really took off. And it at least seems to me that, that we're kind of moving out of that phase a little bit. We're not so interested anymore in just letting anyone have their own alternative facts. We kind of want to um, come together and find some way to, you know, agree on the real facts. Um, so I think the metaphor is shifting in that way. I want to go back, back and pick up the the history. Uh, so we've determined, uh, if you look at the book, I encourage you to do so, Herman Rorschach, there's the pictures in there. He's, uh, you know, sort of the Brad Pitt, I guess, of Swiss psychiatry at the at the time. He's a, <laughs> he's a handsome, handsome man, uh, empathetic, uh, kind. Um, comes from a, a visual arts uh, background and and a family that's been in that area for you know centuries and centuries. But this this is a very interesting time, the 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 early 20th century in Switzerland in the environs. You write in the book that. Uh, Lenin is nearby, developing principles of, of communism he'll, he'll later take to, to Russia. Um, Einstein, of course, developing theory of relativity, you know, down the road uh, a piece. Um, you've, and you've got the visual artists who are very influential in, in that area as well. Uh, well, Tom, I, it delights my heart to hear someone tell me that early 20th century Switzerland is fascinating, because I certainly think so. It's not, I think, 
uh, a very widely held view. You know, I think we have uh, another cliche, which is that Switzerland's really boring. Um, but uh, but you're absolutely right. It's um, you've you have all sorts of modern literature, modern art, modern dance, even architecture, science. Um, all these people that you mentioned, um, some of them are there because this is World War One and it's neutral, so they've come there to get away from their home country, which is at war. But you also have a lot of very homegrown um, Swiss traditions that uh, that create this exciting cultural moment. Um, Rorschach uh, himself uh, it was in the psychiatry version of that because you know, Freud had started writing, but he had a very small audience and uh, a sort of narrow, um, a, a narrow clientele. It was in Zurich that his ideas really sort of entered medicine and started being used in hospitals, and not just on this one couch in Vienna, but really out in the world. And the the man who was most responsible for that was actually uh, Hermann Rorschach's teacher and advisor, a man named Bloiler. Um, so, uh, he was really at the ideal place that could sort of take these new ideas of psychology seriously, but not be totally under Freud's thumb like everyone in Vienna. He really had room to sort of take it in new directions. Uh, so, and as you write in the book, uh, Rorschach, uh, he didn't start with a theory as, as some of the, you know, Freud or, or some of the others did. He, this was really empirical, right? He's working with patients and he has this from his family and his art background, a, a visual frame of reference. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if you're responsible for two or 300 patients, uh, in a large, basically state hospital, um, and some of them are, you know, deeply psychotic, catatonic. Like you can't have talk therapy with them. You can't put them on a couch and have them talk for an hour. They're just not in that state. He was always sort of trying to find ways to connect with them. He'd give them art supplies. Uh, one of my favorite stories is that there was a sort of troop of traveling players that had a monkey, and he sort of got the monkey from them. He said, can I borrow your monkey for a few months? And started taking this monkey around on his rounds. And they would like jump into his patient's hair and play with them for a while. And so it would sort of spark some of them um, into, uh, into more of a connection with him than he was able to get otherwise. You know, so he was just someone who was trying to reach people in ways aside from, you know, people who were in a position to come and give a monologue on a couch for an hour. Um, and many of those ways were visual. Um, it, just an aside, um, this really jumped out at me. Apparently, in his youth, Rorschach wrote a letter to Tolstoy. Yeah, Tolstoy was a big influence on him. Uh, as it, it, He actually was throughout Europe, not so much as a novelist, but as this sort of I mean, Martin Luther King type, um, as this sort of moral uh, shining landmark, um, whether that had to do with pacifism or vegetarianism or just sort of spirituality. He was this real uh, iconic figure. And um, Herman Rorschach, when he was uh, studying French uh, in France, met a sort of disciple of Tolstoy's who was in exile from Russia. This was uh, 1904 and also studying French. And it really sort of opened his eyes. I mean, he was a young man. He was 19 years old. And this was him being abroad and, and seeing the world and being in touch with um, sort of new ideas and new people. And he really fell for this kind of vision of Russia as the place of sort of spiritual, deep feeling and... Um, and then uh, his his friend, his mutual friend with Tolstoy, sort of did get permission to go back to Russia, and he went back and disappeared. Um, so Herman Rorschach, age 20, kind of amazingly writes this letter to Tolstoy saying, Dear Count Tolstoy, I love your work, and by the way, a mutual friend of ours, like I'd really appreciate if you could send me any information. But he also sort of opens his heart to Tolstoy and says, uh, oh, you know, this combination of 
sort of thinking the world in an intellectual way like the Germans, feeling the world in an emotional way like the Russians, and kind of shaping the world in this active way like the Mediterranean peoples. Wouldn't it be great to bring it all together someday? Um, and I sort of use that letter as a leitmotif through the book, because whether he had it in mind or not, this was his kind of holistic vision that he brought to all his activities for the rest of his life, really. So it, it, so it's bigger than, than diagnosis in psychiatry, then? He had, a, he had a bigger goal than that. It, it's funny. He really, he really uh, pivots, in a way, from being an artist to being a scientist. You know, he's, he's interested in the big questions. He's interested in how different people see things, whether that's different friends of his looking at a painting or people from different cultures or people with sort of very different mental powers or whatever it is. Um, and then he comes up with this test. And from that point on, he's very sort of sober and scrupulous and responsible and doesn't want it to be used in real-world situations until there's enough statistical evidence for it and you have enough control groups, and he's trying to sort of get as large a sample size as he can so that he can stop sort of subjectively judging whether something's a good or bad answer and instead objectively saying, well, you know, fewer than one out of 100 people in the sample give this response and stuff like that. So he really, um, you know, had a, a broad vision of being interested in all of the diversity of humankind and how different people see things. But then once he came up with this test, he really wanted it to be used responsibly. Uh, and this does get us into uh, uh, talking about perception, right? The visual artists uh, really get into, into that. Um, you write something interesting about uh, the problem of perception, especially with history. And you said, I wish I had it in front of me, you, you say something like that, that, especially we have a kind of a block in really seeing the world the way it was uh, in the early 20th century. We tend to get hung up on, you know, the jerky uh, silent movies and, and, and the images that are, that are coming out. And that's got, and I guess the, you could apply that to many periods of, of time where we do have a problem really fully perceiving a, a, a different period of time. Yeah, I mean, perception is such a rich um, idea that you can use it in all sorts of different ways. I think I, th I, think I know uh, the passage you're talking about, which is where I'm just sort of introducing him, and I'm kind of planting the seeds that, like, yes, he's a historical figure, but there's color in that world. And yes, you know, we might be used to very stiffly posed photographs because the exposure times were really long, but really, that world was just as dynamic and just as much in movement as ours. So I'm sort of um, having a little literary moment there of foreshadowing that we're going to be getting into this world of real color and life, and it's not just going to be black and white, static, ink blots. Um, but in terms of the bigger question of perception, yes. I mean, this is why I think the Rorschach test did enter the culture so much because we, you know, because it is this visual image of seeing something or seeing something differently or seeing something other people don't see. And that, I mean, that's an experience we all have all the time. That's our whole lives. Um, we go about the world and we try and sort of process it and understand it and we see certain things and we're blind to others. I mean, that's a very real experience for all of us. Um, in a way, much more real than sort of what we say and don't say. What we say and don't say is, is, is limited, uh, but we're always engaged with perceiving the world around us. And so I think that's why um, the test is so fascinating. We do live, uh, and you talk about this, we, we, I think we definitely still do live in a world of data, right? People are very much, in, especially in, in, in the world of science, uh, you need to boil it down to statistics. And Rorschach tests, in a certain way, doesn't fit that. Uh, but it has withstood uh, scientific scrutiny. I think uh, people, scientists have studied the brains of people who are looking at the, the Rorschach images. 
and it it has withstood at least that level of scrutiny. Um, yeah, and the and the the thing is that um, that it is numerical as well as uh, visual. So it's not just impressionistic, where you say what you see and some doctor sort of thinks about what you've said. Uh, as I mentioned before, there are these scores and codes that then get plugged into these formulas, and they end up with a number that you can then compare to the results of other psychological tests and other approaches and diagnoses and whatever you want to do. And in a way, that, I think, is why the test, as a real test, has survived in America, say, better than Freudian psychoanalysis has, because it really was able to turn into something numerical. And that's what insurance companies and you know, courtrooms and various other, like, modern bureaucratic real-world situations needed. They needed a number. They needed the Rorschach test to say, you know, this person's schizophrenia index is whatever. Um, and the test was able to do that because it, it was about these sort of formal, um, codable properties. Um, yeah. Let's uh, take another break. We're talking with Damien Searles, who's author of the new book, The Ink Plots. Herman Rorschach, his iconic test and the power of seeing. I wanted to uh, take a little bit of a hi- uh, us through a little bit of the history of uh, how this test was used. It becomes uh, sort of a, a history of uh, the ups and downs of psychological testing itself. And to get back into uh, the popular conception, uh, the Rorschach test in uh, popular culture, and uh, maybe speculate uh, what may have happened had Dr. Rorschach lived. He, he died early at, at 37. Um, we'll talk more following this break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Are you wondering if depth or breadth is best for your career? Are technical skills more important than general management? Well, the answer is yes. 40 years of career research on knowledge workers shows that the vast majority of successful careers begin with solid technical skills. But eventually, if you want to be valued, you will need to let go of what made you successful and go broad. Going broad at the right time after a technical foundation is the formula for most successful careers. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU John M. Huntsman School of Business One-Year Master of Business Administration, specializing in strategic business development and value creation, business analytics, and finance. Details at huntsman.usu.edu slash MBA. Say you have a baby. You raise her with love. One day I'm going to be able to tell her, you can do this. Push yourself. The kid's going to turn out exactly as you planned, right? Yeah. (laughs) Hold on here. It would be nice if life was like that, but life isn't like that. Life is hard. Are we bound by our DNA, or can a parent change it? That's on the next Radio Lab. Join us this Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest is Damien Searles, author of the new book, The Ink Plots. Herman Rorschach, his iconic test and the power of seeing. It's a scientific and cultural history of the Rorschach test and the first biography of its uh, creator, Herman Rorschach. And uh, you're invited to join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com. We have another uh, seven or eight minutes with Damien Searles. Damon Searles, uh, I wonder, this is pure speculation. I'm asking you to, to engage in pure speculation. Herman Rorschach died early. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, ruptured appendix, uh, appendix uh, age 37. Uh, he had, as we've said, uh, pretty large goals extending perhaps beyond psychiatry. What do you think would have come of Dr. Rorschach had he lived longer? It's it's so hard to know, I mean, especially with a creative person, what they would have done, um, because if if we could predict it, then they wouldn't be creative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes think that if if Rorschach lived to be the age that Carl Jung lived to, then he would have lived until 1971 uh, instead of 1922. So he would have been through so many of the developments of the century that changed psychology and changed, you know, our ideas about perception and humanity. Um, I think that 
the test in a way might have stayed more narrow if he had had his sort of guiding hand and guiding eye there to sort of steer it. Uh, what what actually happened um, starting in the 30s and 40s is that uh, it blew up and went into all these different directions, um, including some very kind of speculative ones where, you know, if you see weak, skinny arms over here, then your relationship with your husband is in trouble kind of stuff that I think he would have been much more resistant to. Uh, he would have sort of clamped down a bit on some of the wilder uses of the test. But uh, he also, you know, I don't know, maybe he would have been able to come up with more of the sort of theory and philosophy behind it that makes it work that the test really lacked for its whole history. Um, you know, he was able sort of artistically or intuitively to come up with it, but he didn't live to sort of really explore it and figure out how it works. The book also, uh, uh, sir, one of the themes of the book is uh, become sort of a uh, history of the ups and downs of psychological testing, Rorschach test being maybe the most famous example of, of that field. Uh, so it, uh, in part because Dr. Rorschach died, it really took off in the United States after his death, um, uh, used by the military extensively, um, uh, also used at the Nuremberg trials. It was used, uh, it was abused, uh, you know, I, I think uh, by the Nazis uh, uh, and others. Um, I wonder where psychological testing is, is today. It has had some ups and downs. Uh, in in general, I, it, these tests are still used, right? Yeah. Uh, um, the reason I, I track a, a lot of that through the book is because the Rorschach test really was the epitome of the psychological test. At one point uh, in 1965, someone said, um, the, the Rorschach test is as iconic for psychologists as the stethoscope is for doctors. Um, and that really was true in the 50s into the early 60s. So if you're talking about the ups and downs of the Rorschach test, you really are talking about personality testing and psychological testing um, at, its, at its peak. Um, there have been, you know, recent books about personality testing, some of them sort of crusading for it and some of them crusading against it. And so I didn't, I didn't want to do too much of that, partly because, um, you know, now I think in psychiatry, the, um, the Rorschach test is sort of one test among others, and it's, it's used sort of less spectacularly. You know, it, it actually works for this and that. It doesn't work for this other stuff, and it certainly doesn't work as a magic X-ray of your mind. Um, so the, the sort of present-day story of personality testing is in a way a little bit different from the, the Rorschach test. Um, I think what people are concerned with now are these privacy and big data questions, and then the whole sort of philosophical question of can you really understand a person at all, that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I don't know how much I have to say about the, the, the exact present moment with personality testing, but certainly the history of it really was the history of the Rorschach test. And uh, we just have uh, uh, just about three minutes left. I want to end with uh, pop culture. Pop culture has found these images irresistible, I guess, predictably. Andy Warhol made his own series of giant ink blots entitled each of the paintings Rorschach. Jay-Z, as you write, put one of Warhol's works on the cover of his book, Decoded. Um, th this this has been a staple in popular culture. Yeah, um, and everyone should go look up the video for Crazy, the Gnarls Barkley song on YouTube, which is another, uh, which is the number one song of the decade. I think it's 2006, and um, that has these morphing Rorschachy ink blots as a kind of symbol for um, being crazy. Uh, I think that... Um, one of the fascinating things is how the pop culture use, which in a way has nothing to do with the science. I mean, like Andy Warhol did not know how the test worked. He wasn't using it as psychology. He wasn't even using the real images. He was making his own. Um, so in a way, that has nothing to do with the actual Rorschach test. But there's all this crossover back and forth all the time between 
the real test and the sort of flashpoint of popular culture. You know, it wouldn't be so controversial if it wasn't used, and it wouldn't be used so much if it wasn't, you know, known. I, my favorite example is that that Gnarls uh, uh, Barkley video, the reason that the sort of production company got the job when they pitched to the band, like, hey, let's make a video for your song that uses all these ink blots, is because the singer, CeeLo Green, remembered having been really given a Rorschach test when he was a troubled teenager. So he had been given the, the real psychological test. And then years later, as a musician, he's like, yeah, let's make that the video. So there's always this sort of back and forth where um, it goes between being a real psychological instrument and being this kind of icon that we all have. Uh, just a couple of minutes. What was your experience like? You, you know, many of us have not taken the test. You sought out a, a, a I guess, a psychiatrist who would be was kind of middle of the road and was willing to uh, give you the test out of curiosity, right? Um, right. So in a way, I wasn't really taking it because it wasn't really trying to test anything. You know, I wasn't being judged whether I was schizophrenic or not. You know, I wasn't being judged whether I could be a police officer or not. So in a way, I, I was uh, give I was walked through the test. Um, but yeah, so, you know, he sat me down and he showed me the 10 cards one by one and said, what might this be? And I gave my answers and he wrote them down. And then I went back at the end of the week and he had sort of scored and coded them all and kind of talked me through what it meant. Um, my experience of it was that it was a really fascinating experience. Um, the results he gave me seemed pretty plausible. Like he said, you're this kind of person, you're that kind of person. And I was like, yeah, okay. Um, the skeptical part of my mind says, you know, if a fortune teller listens to me talk about anything for an hour, they'd probably be able to describe my personality pretty well. So, you know, it, it didn't have, it didn't like magically reveal the, you know, something I had written in my diary when I was 12 and it never told anyone. I mean, it didn't work like that. But the images themselves were really gripping, and I really connected to them in a way that I don't when I look at a painting or when I look at, you know, an ink blot that's on a vodka ad or whatever. Um, they really did have this kind of mystery that seemed like nothing else I'd seen before. And so it did seem really... Uh, I mean, that was that was what sort of taught me the lesson that Rorschach's 10 unique ink blots really did have something special about them as visual things. We have reached the end of our time. Very interesting subject, interesting book, The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test, and The Power of Seeing. The author is Damien Searles, and you can find out more about him at his website, DamienSearles.com. Uh, Damien Searles, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Heard on KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.